This morning's scripture is Philippians 3, verses 7 through 14. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which for, for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me once again? Father, we are grateful for your word. We pray that this morning it would be sweet to us as honey in the honeycomb. Father, we pray that the demands of your word would not discourage or crush our spirits, but would instead humble us, make us come to you for grace, understanding that even our best obedience is a mix of folly and wisdom a mix of faith and doubt, and often half-hearted. Humbled, we come expecting grace, needing grace, and also asking for your power to enable us to obey more fully. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I am going to stir a little bit of controversy, wade into some treacherous waters. But over the past few weeks, I have watched my fair share of Christmas movies, and some of them I love, others not so much. So I thought to myself, what are the best Christmas movies out there? And of course, there's this great thing called the internet where you can find the answers to all your questions, and I found innumerable polls, right? So you got to be careful where you're getting your news. So I went to Time Magazine, and they recently published a poll of the most loved Christmas movies. I love this poll because it breaks it down by generation. So for teenagers, their most loved Christmas movies, first, Home Alone, second, Elf, third, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, okay? For millennials, it's Home Alone, The Grinch, followed by The Elf. For those 65 and up, different set of movies. It's a Wonderful Life, Miracle on 34th Street, and A Christmas Story. They actually give you an aggregate if you combine all the scores from all the different age groups, 
And at number five, it's The Grinch. Number four is Christmas Vacation, National Lampoons. I just report the news, right? Number three, Home Alone. Number two, A Christmas Story. And number one, It's a Wonderful Life. Now, in case you needed any reminder, polls can be awfully wrong, right? That poll offends me because Die Hard doesn't even make the top five. (laughs) And we all know that A Christmas Story is, hands down, the best Christmas movie ever. If you don't think so, you're wrong, okay? (laughs) It is my favorite Christmas movie. I watch it two, three times a year. Uh, Yeah, that's me. Um, I love all the funny parts, you know. I can't put my arms down. You'll put your arms down at school, you know. Uh, You look like a deranged Easter bunny, I think is my favorite line of the the whole movie. But actually, one of my favorite scenes isn't a funny scene. Uh, Towards the end of the movie, Christmas morning has come. Uh, The house looks like a tornado of wrapping paper and bows and ribbons has gone through it. And the old man and mom and Ralphie are sitting on the couch. Uh, The little brother, Randy? Yeah, Randy, Randy. Uh, is passed out asleep, right, amidst the Christmas toys. Mom and dad are sipping a glass of wine, and just, they're content. Ralphie's not quite content yet. He hasn't got the BB gun, but if you were going to ask me, especially at Christmas time, what's your picture of contentment? I think that would be it. You know, enjoying the family, just, they're cuddled up on the couch. It's just, it's a great scene of contentment. I don't think we need to be reminded that contentment is good, that we ought to strive for contentment. But is contentment always good? Certainly scripture tells us contentment is good, right? The book of Hebrews says, you know, guard yourself against the love of money and be content with what you have. The apostle Paul says godliness with contentment is great gain. But what about contentment without godliness? Is that good? Uh, Sometimes contentment isn't good. Sometimes I think contentment is merely complacency in disguise. Contentment says Be appreciative, be thankful, enjoy what you have. Complacency says, eh, good enough. Sometimes contentment is merely complacency in disguise. Uh, This morning as we think about heading into a new year, I want to challenge you to stoke into flame holy discontent in three areas of life. Uh, The scripture that was read this morning, I think you wouldn't read that and say, the Apostle Paul sounds really content there. He's not content. He wants to strive for more. So as we think about moving into a new year, I want to encourage you to stoke into flame three areas 
of holy discontent in your life. First, strive to foster holy discontent in your own spiritual growth. When we talk about growth, uh, we can mean at least one of or two different things. We can talk about natural growth or a kind of more determined growth. When I talk about how quickly my kids have grown, what I'm talking about is the kind of natural physical growth that happens through infancy and toddler years and into adolescence. For the first, you know, roughly 20 years of our life, we expect growth in stature, physical growth. And then later on, horizontal growth. Uh, But that's the kind of natural growth. We don't do that much to facilitate it. You know, eat your vegetables, get a good night's sleep, drink your milk. We can encourage it a little bit. You can't stop it, really. It's natural. But there's also a kind of determined growth. Those of you who have ever had musicians in your house know how painful those early months of their learning can be. As instruments squeak and belch sounds that are not pleasant. But they grow as musicians, or they they grow as artists. They're determined to gain a mastery over their instrument, or over their skill, or over the content that they're throwing themselves into. It's a more determined, not a natural growth, but a determined growth. When we talk about spiritual growth, I think both are a part of that. Uh, There is a natural growth. We're children of God, and as children of God, we grow as children grow, naturally. But there is also a determined growth that we're called to. Both are a part of the Christian life. Look at Colossians 1, chapter 9 and 10. I'm sorry, Colossians 1, verses 9 and 10. Font's a little small. I apologize. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. This is almost that kind of natural growth that Paul is praying for. Uh, The church, the individuals in the church, aren't determining here to grow, Paul is asking that God would provide the growth. He's the one that's going to give the knowledge. It's his spirit that's going to enable this growth. But you can look elsewhere. The passage that was read, Paul seems determined that he will press on, determined not to be satisfied with where he is at spiritually, but to to press on towards the goal. That's his personal goal, and he's determined to do it, to grow in that way. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3 actually commands the church and individual Christians to grow. He says, now grow. It's a command. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's both natural growth that we should expect from God and determined growth that we ought to throw ourselves into. Spiritual growth doesn't just happen. It's a part of our, 
it is in some ways dependent on our effort, our determination to grow spiritually. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul uses a metaphor of athletes in physical training. You know, they put their bodies through all kinds of rigors to get ready for the race, to get ready for the event. And he says, likewise, we ought to do that spiritually, to train ourselves, to discipline ourselves, to produce growth. I know in the, the years that I coached, I, I love watching athletes improve. It, it was pretty easy in the early stages for, say, a a sprinter, in the pool to drop five seconds off their time. You know, their first year they might go from a a 36-second 50-meter swim down to a 29-second 50-meter swim. Dramatic improvement early on. The next year, maybe a second or two can get shaved off. The third year, maybe half-second. By the fourth, fifth, sixth years, you're not talking in terms of half seconds and seconds. You're talking in terms of tenths and hundreds of seconds. They're putting a massive amount of effort into just improving, just growing slightly. I think sometimes spiritually, especially as we get more seasoned in the faith, we stop putting the effort in to grow those small degrees. We can look back at our lives and say, man, remember that time where we dropped seven seconds, where we grew exponentially in our walk with the Lord? But just because we're more seasoned, the expectation for growth hasn't diminished. But it might require even more effort. It might require even more determination. More focus as we study the word, more determination in, in prayer. It might require us incorporating disciplines in our spiritual life that we're not accustomed to incorporating. Maybe fasting, maybe spiritual retreat, maybe silence. As we strive to grow even more and more. Maybe it's going to require intentional involvement in community. Maybe you've, frankly, grown as much as you can on your own. Now you need a brother or a sister in Christ to sharpen you as iron sharpens iron. This year, as you think ahead about how am I going to grow spiritually, be committed to it. Do what it takes. Work at it and work in community. Not so that you can add another merit badge to your spiritual sash. But so that you can know and experience more of God in your life. It's not about performance, it's pursuit. So foster holy discontent in your spiritual growth. Second area, I would encourage you to foster holy discontent on behalf of the other. There is a danger when you say, lean into spiritual growth, that we strive and put a lot of effort into growing in very private and personal ways, in ways that don't spill over into relationship, in ways that don't spill over into caring for others. Second Peter 
again, the same letter that Peter uses to encourage, to command spiritual growth in his readers, he also says to them, I don't want you to be unproductive, unfruitful in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. So be sure to add virtue to your faith. He, he has this list of virtues. They include things like goodness, patience, self-control, godliness. But the list culminates in brotherly affection and love. That verse reminds us that we can be unfruitful in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. But God wants us to be fruitful. And the way to do that is to add love to our knowledge and faith. Love, I I think, demands that we be discontent on behalf of others. I, I know I run the danger of being radically misunderstood here. I'm not saying don't be content with what you have, don't be appreciative of what you have, don't enjoy what you have. I'm not saying that. But in your appreciativeness, in your enjoyment of what you have, we cannot turn a blind eye or a blind blind ear, well, that's brilliant, deaf ear, to those who don't have. In our contentment in what we have, I think it is good and godly to be discontent on behalf of those who do not have. To be discontent and dissatisfied because the world we live in is fallen and things aren't the way they ought to be. The rich should not continue getting richer and richer at the cost of the poor. The powerful should not keep getting more and more powerful by oppressing those who don't have power. We ought to be discontent on their behalf. This is a symptom of our, of our fallenness. I get it. I know. Jesus himself said, the poor will always be among you. But he didn't say that to numb us to the needs of the poor. Be discontent on their behalf. Long for greater equity. Pray for it. Work for it. Now now maybe you're sitting there saying, okay, now you're talking about social justice stuff, or maybe you're attaching a, a political label to what I'm saying, and that's fine. We can have those conversations over coffee or whatever. Whatever we call it, let's make sure we call it what the Bible calls it, righteousness. Proverbs 29, 7 says the righteous man, the righteous man cares about justice for the poor. This week I was reading in Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah takes to task the people of Israel for being, well, frankly concerned with spiritual things but not with genuine, true righteousness. This is Isaiah 58, 6 through 9. He's been talking about fasting. And he says, is not this the kind of fasting that I have chosen? 
to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. This is the kind of spirituality, the kind of growth that God is longing for. Not unproductive and unfruitful knowledge of him, but fruitful knowledge that spills over into love and care and compassion and action. As I was thinking about examples of what that looks like, the first person that came to mind from the Bible was the man Nehemiah. Nehemiah was one of the Israelites who grew up in exile. Born in exile, grew up in exile, having his parents or grandparents having been deported probably to Babylon first and then in the Persian Empire. Somehow Nehemiah ends up being the cupbearer to the king. Doesn't sound like a great grand thing, but it really was. It was an incredibly prestigious position. He had the ear of the king. He had unfettered access to the king. He had the trust of King Artaxerxes. But a report comes to Nehemiah that people in his homeland are barely eking out an existence. And he weeps. And he's moved to compassion. He's stirred with a holy discontent on behalf of the other. And he leaves behind the good things that he had in Persia to go and render aid. The story is incredible. He, he becomes basically governor of the province. But even then, he, doesn't, he says, I don't eat and take all that is really due me as governor. Instead, I distribute that to the poor because they are in such dire need. I understand we can't fix all the things that are broken, all the systems that are broken. I, I understand it, but we can't be indifferent to it either. Mark Twain said, good friends, good books, and a sleepy conscience, that's the ideal life. I'll confess that my conscience is often sleepy. Let's ask God to waken it. Let's ask him to stir in us a holy discontent for the other. Uh, lastly, I hope that God will stir in me and in you a, a holy discontent on behalf or for the gospel. Um, my wife is someone who cannot rest until the work is done. Uh, she cannot go to bed if there's dishes in the sink. She cannot go to sleep if the pillows on the couch aren't right. I think I've come up to bed before like two in the morning and she says, did you put the pillows back on the couch? I mean, I've tried for 20 years to change that. It's not going to change. And there's times where I really appreciate that. Sometimes 
not really often, but, um, but she cannot rest if the work is not done. I think we need a little bit more of that in us, the church. I'm not saying this church, I'm saying the church. Because the work isn't done. I hope that God stirs in us again a, a holy discontent. Maybe we could call it a gospel restlessness for the work that remains to be done. For the parts of the world that have no viable gospel witness. Would he stir in us a desire to change that? One of the things I love about ECC is their commitment to supporting missions and missionaries who are going to places that have no church, no viable Christian witness, to make the gospel known among those who do not know it. That's awesome. But the work isn't done. Uh, Let's recommit ourselves to the work of taking the gospel to those who don't know it. And if we're honest, that doesn't mean going to Timbuktu. In increasing measure, our neighbors, our classmates, are completely ignorant of the gospel. They've never heard it. They've never been told it. They don't have a viable Christian witness unless you will be that in their life. Be discontent for those who have never heard the gospel. Paul says, it's great that I'm preaching here where the gospel's already been heard, But my passion is to go where the gospel hasn't been heard, to preach it there. I think we should also be discontent for those who have heard the gospel, but not yet received it. I think there's sometimes an attitude in my own heart that says, well, I told them. What they do now is up to them. That is wholly displeasing to God. Just be honest about it. He doesn't want that coldness in our witness. He wants a fervency, a passion, a compassion for those who need to hear and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we share and we say we receive a no back, we persist prayerfully. God, please turn the no into, well, let me hear more. Please turn the let me hear more into, yes, this is the word of life that I've been waiting to hear. Be discontent for those who have never heard. Be discontent for those who have heard but not yet received and allow it to make us prayerful. I'm not saying that we should never rest. But I think our rest should even be purposeful rest. Rest for the purpose of revitalizing ourselves, re-energizing ourselves to complete the task that we've been given. I pray that this year as you look at 2019, I pray it's a, a great year for you. A year where you can be content with what God is doing in your life, content with what God has given you, appreciative, content, except when you should be discontent. Maybe we need to pray that God would give us the wisdom to be able to discern the two. Let's make that our prayer even now. Father, we thank you for your word again. As I prayed in the beginning, I pray that it wouldn't discourage us, and I certainly 
Did not want to sound harsh. But these are the demands of your word. And we pray that you would enable us to live up to them. We pray that by your grace and by your power, we would be obedient. We would be content when you call us to be content and wholly discontent when you ask for that. Father, we pray that your spirit would give us the wisdom to know the difference. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.